about our next sermon series coming up in just a couple of weeks, starting October 21st. Uh, we'll be kicking off a series called The Call. And uh, the idea of calling or being called is really mysterious and confusing. It shouldn't be, but it is. I mean, a call, that's something all of us want. We all want us to be able to say, yeah, I'm living out what God has called me to do, but uh, very few of us are actually really confident about that. I mean, there are some people that they just know this is what God wants me to do, or this is where God wants me to be. But for the rest of us, it's pretty elusive, and it's confusing. And and how do we know what God wants us to do? How do we figure out the ways that God has uniquely wired us? All those kinds of questions are going to be answered, hopefully, in our series coming up, The Call. And uh, we're going to explore our relationships, our work, our life experiences, our personalities, figure out all those things that God has given us and how they put together, how they make sense in in terms of what God really wants us to do. So uh, looking forward to that. That starts October 21st, and you've got this postcard in your worship folder. That's an invitation. You can use that to invite your friends. It should be a helpful series for all of us. Did you know that one of the world's most successful marketing campaigns is not for a product... It's for a place. Even if you have never been to Las Vegas, you know that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah, the slogan is one of the most famous taglines in modern marketing. So well known, in fact, they made a movie with the same title, a whole movie built around an advertising slogan. That's how well known it is. But uh, it's a phrase that's over 10 years old, one of the most quoted talked about, recognized campaigns in any industry. What happens here stays here was first cooked up in 2003 in a brainstorming meeting of the Las Vegas Tourism Department. They wanted to brand Las Vegas for something beyond just gambling. And uh, the creators of the slogan, they say this about the creation of it. They say the emotional bond between Las Vegas and its customers is freedom. Freedom on two levels, freedom to do things, see things, eat things, wear things, feel things. In short, the freedom to be someone we couldn't be at home. And freedom from whatever we wanted to leave behind in our daily lives. Just thinking about Vegas made the bad stuff go away, they say. At that point, the strategy for us became clear. Speak to that need. Make an indelible connection between Las Vegas and the freedom we all crave. Well, freedom is something that we all crave, maybe not quite in the way that Las Vegas wants us to experience it, but, uh, but freedom is something we crave nonetheless. And we're all tempted at times to disconnect ourselves from our daily lives and try to live in a way that what happens here stays here. And while living like that might feel free, in fact, it's really just the opposite. It's slavery. Trying to be one thing here and be something else there, it just doesn't work. But fortunately for us, there's a much better way to live, a way that's, that's truly free. And in order for us to really discover what that looks like, we're going to see that better way to live laid out in the Bible. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring the biblical book of Philemon, In this book, we're going to talk about freedom, real freedom, what it looks like. We're going to learn from a person who tasted freedom for the first time. And the book is Philemon. You can go ahead and start looking for it in your Bibles now because it's kind of hard to find. It's only one page long. Uh, It comes towards the end of the New Testament, maybe three-fourths of the way through your Bible. If you find the book of Hebrews, it's right before that, Philemon. 
And it's a short book. It's so short you might wonder what we have to talk about for the next two weeks about this book. But even though it's short, it's really packed with riches. I'm looking forward to sharing it with us this morning. And, and as I said, this is a, a letter. It's a book that's a letter, a personal letter. is written by Paul the Apostle to Philemon, a friend of his. And something that we don't think about very often is that God uses a lot of different ways to communicate to us, to his people. And throughout the Bible, God used the law, written on stone tablets carried by Moses. He used history books. He uses poetry and prophecy of various kinds. He uses biographies of Jesus in the Gospels. But it's fascinating to think that God also uses letters. And in this case, just a personal letter from one person to another. But because it's in the Bible, that tells us that this letter, that God has a bigger purpose For this letter. Beyond just a conversation between two friends, there are things that this letter has to teach us. The purpose, the effect of it, reach beyond just the sender and the recipient, Paul and Philemon. In fact, that's a key idea that we're going to explore this week and the next. A key idea in our lives that's really the total opposite of Las Vegas. The idea is this what happens in here should show up out there. The conversations, the relationships, the way we live and think and act, all the things that happen in here should have an effect on our real life out there. What happens in here should show up out there in the real world. But I probably don't have to tell you that there's a gap, the so-called Sunday to Monday gap. It's been said that the space between 11 a.m. on Sunday and 8 a.m. on Monday for most church-going people might as well be the distance from Boston to Beijing. They're that far away from each other. They have so little to do with each other, they seem to be at opposite ends of the world. Just like if you took a trip to Vegas in order to escape your reality, become somebody you're not, live without any consequences, there's a gap. For far too many of us, the things we talk about in here, the things God wants to see in our lives, they don't show up once we walk out the door. But it doesn't have to be that way. What happens in here should show up out there in the real world. And the challenge that we have, the challenge is is closing that Sunday to Monday gap. That's the same challenge that Philemon had, which is why Paul writes in this letter. And it's precisely why this letter is in the Bible, because it helps us bridge the gap from Sunday to Monday. It helps us make sure that what happens in here shows up out there. And that's exactly why it's not just a personal letter from one friend to another. It's a letter that was meant to be shared, meant to be read, in fact, meant to be read in church. You can see that right at the beginning of the letter, who it's addressed to. So I want us to read it, uh, all of it. It's brief, it's just one chapter, but reading it together is going to give us the context that we need to learn some valuable things from it. So... Philemon, starting in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So brief pause here. You see, Philemon, he's the main recipient, but also his wife and his son, who's old enough to be a partner in ministry, a fellow soldier, it says. And I told you it's a letter meant to be read in church, just like we're doing now, and that's why it says, and to the church that meets in your home. So Philemon and Aphia, they apparently hosted a church in their home. So uh, let's keep reading. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If what he has done, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's the letter. That's all of it. And, and you may already know, or hopefully you kind of picked up on the central issue about which Paul is writing. It all has to do with the person named Onesimus. You can see that in verse 10. Paul has a request for Philemon that has to do with Onesimus. And there's a lot of divided opinions about exactly what the situation is here. There are a couple of things we know for sure. I mean, it's challenging because uh, it's a letter between two friends, and they both know what they're talking about. So there's some, some gaps for us, some things that go unsaid. That means we've got to do a little bit of detective work to figure out really what's happening. But a couple of things that we do know for sure. First, we know that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. Slavery was very, very common in the ancient Roman world, so common, in fact, that one estimate tells us there's approximately 60 million slaves in the ancient Roman Empire, and the total population was under 120 million, so slavery is very, very common. Uh, but different from the, the race-based slavery that scars American history, different from that. And, and so Philemon owns this slave named Onesimus, And Onesimus was with Paul, who's writing this letter from prison. You can see that in verse 9. Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And while Onesimus was with Paul, something has happened. Onesimus has become a believer in Jesus. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And uh, different people feel differently about exactly why Paul is writing to Philemon. A lot of people think Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from Philemon, somehow found his way to Paul, and now Paul's sending Onesimus back, but writing to Philemon, so Philemon will show some mercy to him. And that's possible. 
But I think there's something different going on in this book. I'll explain in a bit. But the, the basic story to understand for now is that Onesimus was with Philemon, but he's now with Paul, and Paul's sending him back with this letter. So that's the basic situation. That's why Paul's writing this letter. He's sending Onesimus back, and the reason for this letter is to explain why he's sending Onesimus back. But the bigger reason for this letter is because what happens in here should show up out there. That's ultimately why Paul is writing the letter, to help us bridge that gap. So let's dive into the letter a bit deeper. The purpose of the letter is so that what happens in here shows up out there. Let's figure out how to make that happen in our lives. And I want us to start with the main characters. Just just look at these individuals who are mentioned in this letter. First of all, there's Paul. He's the author of the letter. He's a guy who's, who's given his life to sharing the gospel, to living out his own relationship with Jesus, really making it show up in every aspect of his life. And as he writes this letter, as we said, he's a prisoner. He's been imprisoned because of his faith. But let's look at some of the other descriptions of Paul that come from this letter. Look at verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold, I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So in this this little section, we see Paul in a variety of roles. He's a prisoner, as he says, but he's more than that. He's an apostle. And he doesn't specifically say that. He, He hints at it. He says, I could be bold. I could order you to do what you ought to do. So he tells Philemon, he's got the authority as an apostle to order Philemon to do what he wants, but he doesn't appeal to that. He Instead, he wants Philemon to respond in love. And it's kind of ironic that in setting aside his, his role of an apostle, he really kind of reinforces it. I mean, it's a little passive-aggressive, if you ask me, just saying. But, you know, he's like, hey, I know I'm an apostle. You know I'm an apostle. We don't have to talk about the apostle thing. We don't have to go to the mattresses on this. Just do the right thing without me having to pull out the apostle card. That's basically what he says. So, so apostle, that's one of the roles that Paul has here. Prisoner is one of the roles. He mentions he's an old man. He's got some wisdom. He's got some leadership, right? And he says he's a father, a, a spiritual father to Onesimus. He calls Onesimus his son. The idea is just that Paul led Onesimus to faith in Christ. So he's a spiritual father to him. He's been discipling. He's been growing Onesimus. Now he's sending him back to Philemon. And there's a couple of other ways he describes himself. Not just an apostle, not just this wise old man, but he also describes himself as a partner. He's a partner with Philemon. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. He considers himself a partner with Philemon. A couple of verses later, he goes even better than that. He calls himself Philemon's brother. Verse 20. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, he says. And this echoes how he describes Philemon at the beginning of the letter, verse 2, to Philemon, our dear friend, our fellow worker. So there's a lot of different roles that are being played here by Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. And the main thing I want us to notice is that all these descriptions, not really highlighting himself, Paul is, but he's highlighting relationships. His relationship to the Lord, prisoner of the Lord. His relationship to Onesimus, father to son. His relationship to Philemon, equal partners and brothers. So there's an emphasis on relationships all through the letter. I want us to notice that because relationships are a big part of making what happens in here show up out there. 
And Paul, he intentionally downplays the relationships that put him in a place of superiority like apostle. He intentionally plays up the relationships that put people on equal footing, partner, brother, fellow worker. So he minimizes his role as apostle, but he emphasizes his role as partner with Philemon as brother. And even though he mentions he's the father of Onesimus, spiritually speaking, even that has an element of equality to it because he also mentions he's the father of Philemon, spiritually speaking. You see that verse 19. Uh, He led Philemon to the Lord in the same way he led Onesimus to the Lord. So he's really pointing out not so much his role as their father, but their role as equals, uh, spiritual brothers. They both came to faith through Paul. So Paul emphasizes all these relationships to really reestablish who everybody is. Because that's one of the biggest ways that we see a gap between what happens in here and what happens out there. In here, the uh, elements of status that define the world out there, that define relationships, in here they all fall away. In here, we're all one. We're all equal with one head, Christ. So we live with humility. We live with grace for each other, love for each other. Well, that same humility and grace should show up out there in the world. I had an old pastor who used to always say, you will never meet a person that Jesus wasn't willing to die for. Think about that. Even the most obnoxious person who gets under your skin, the most difficult person in your life, the most stubborn and hard-hearted person that you might be married to, Jesus thought about all those people and was willing to die for them. If we start to think about people that way, then status, our own preferences, our own selfish desires, they all take a back seat to just humility and grace. If we think about people that way, then what happens in here starts to show up out there. The simple reality is that the gospel should change the way we think about and interact with people, should change our relationships. If we're focused on what Christ has done for us, something we try to remind ourselves about each and every week, if we're focused on that, it should change everything about the way we do relationships out there. Part of the reason Paul writes this letter is to teach Philemon and his church that lesson, that people matter to God and they should matter to us. Paul, he's even willing to model that for Philemon. He says, I could order you to do what I want, but I won't. I'll defer to you. I'll trust you to make the right decision about welcoming Onesimus back as a brother. He says in verse 15, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. One author that I read said this, the point is clear. Despite Paul's own desire, he's willing to give up his rights in honor of Philemon's own judgment. Paul is thereby hoping that Philemon will give up his own rights to act in line with the new reality that exists in Christ. Giving up our rights, that's something that should show up out there. Giving up our rights in order to see God most glorified. But the idea of giving up our rights, that flies against everything in our culture. Our whole culture is built on fierce individualism. And nowhere is that sense of individualism stronger than right here in the Pacific Northwest. 
And maybe the epicenter of it is right here in Walla Walla, the town that was named friendliest small town in America is full of people who are fiercely individualistic. But that's the opposite of the way that the gospel calls us to live. Instead, we should be giving up our rights, giving up what we think we might be owed. Let's commit to making what happens in here, gospel transformation, show up out there. John Pattison is a co-author of a book called Slow Church. He says this, Rather than confining the life of faith to Sunday mornings, where it can be kept safe and predictable, or to just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that can be managed from the privacy of our own home, he says ministry should cultivate a deep, holistic discipleship that touches every aspect of our lives. What happens in here should show up out there. And relationships are a key part of making that happen. George Barna reinforces the message, saying it this way, following Jesus isn't a privatized faith, but it's a lifelong apprenticeship undertaken in Christian community. So relationships are one way that we can make what happens in here show up out there, but there's another way. This one has to do with how we use our resources. Uh, I told you many people think the purpose of this letter is that uh, Paul met up with this runaway slave. He's now sending Onesimus back to Philemon looking for mercy, but I really think something different's happening here. Paul describes Philemon as a, as a partner in ministry, and I think Philemon has been that up to a point. I think he was willing to host this church, share some of his wealth. I think he heard about Paul in prison, maybe felt bad, decided he could help out. Uh, I don't think Onesimus ran away. I think Philemon sent Onesimus to Paul to give Paul some aid. You know, in prisons during this time, a prisoner had to care for their own needs, their own food, medical care, that kind of a thing. And so a prisoner really relied on the help of outsiders. And in this case, Paul, he mentions Timothy right at the beginning of the letter. Timothy seems to be helping him. And I think Philemon sent his slave Onesimus to Paul so that he could help him too. And I don't want to necessarily talk about a person as as property or as a resource, but I think that's how Philemon thought about him. You know, hey, I got this extra slave. He doesn't really work that hard for me. I'll send him over to Paul. I think that kind of helped Philemon feel better about stuff. It's, it's the equivalent of just writing a check and walking away. Now he can go back to business as usual. He's done what he's, his part, right? But then here comes Onesimus back to his doorstep, and he's got this letter from Paul. And in this letter, Paul says he hasn't treated Onesimus like property. He's treated him like a person. He's led Onesimus to faith. I mean, I don't know how long this church met in Philemon's house, but in all the weeks or months that that happened, Philemon never led Onesimus to faith, but now Paul has. And so Paul wants Philemon to recognize that Onesimus has changed. He's even more useful than he was. Look at verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. And the idea of useful, it's really a play on words. Onesimus' name means useful. And while it seems that Philemon thought of him as useless, now Paul arguing he's quite useful. He's, he's useful in ministry. He's a partner in the same way that Philemon is a partner. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul describes him in even warmer terms. He tells Philemon, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. So what does this have to do with our own resources? It's very simple. What happens in here should show up out there. Philemon models for us what it looks like to just throw resources at a problem. 
I mean, really, when you think about it, he did about the least you could do to help Paul, even though he owes Paul a lot. Paul reminds him at the end of the letter, you owe me your very self. Paul changed Philemon's life, and Philemon just gives him a little bit of age. He sends Onesimus, this slave he doesn't even like, and frankly is kind of happy to get rid of to Paul to provide what little help he can. Well, we don't have slaves, thankfully, but we can draw a line to what this looks like in our lives, using our own resources. If we recognize, like Paul reminds Philemon, that we owe our whole lives to Christ, then it should show up in the way we use our resources. We should be willing to live sacrificially. Just as we set aside our own rights in our relationships, we should be willing to set aside our own hold on our resources to live with radical, sacrificial generosity. Here at Trinity, we sometimes talk about the four lifelong practices. These are practices that each person should be growing in over the course of their spiritual lives. And these practices, they all fall into four categories. That's why we call them the four lifelong practices. And one of the practices in the, the giving category tells us this. A disciple should give generously of themselves, their time and their resources to minister to others, often at great personal cost. That's the model for us, the the standard, giving sacrificially of all of our resources. So we talk about that in here, but what happens in here should show up out there. So unlike Philemon, who just throws some of his extra resources at Paul in an effort to help, we want to be people who are marked by sacrificial giving. We want to be people who can say, as Paul says, we owe our whole lives to Christ. And we're not trying to repay God for what he's done. It doesn't work that way. We couldn't do that even if we had to. We're not trying to earn God's favor. What we're hoping to do is just live in a way that honors God, that grows us, that stretches us as his followers, that shows his love and grace to other people. That's why this is a practice that we want to see in our lives. We want it to show up, radical generosity. But the reality is that it just doesn't for most of us, at least not enough. I came across some statistics recently that speak to this. According to some research by George Barna, the most important financial goal of American Christians, according to a survey, is to provide for my family. Okay, well, that's not terrible. That's wise. But the same study found that the second most important financial goal of American Christians to support the lifestyle I want. That's not exactly radical sacrificial generosity. In fact, radical generosity is not even the third most important financial goal, or the fourth. According to this study, the sixth most important financial goal of American Christians is to serve God with my money. I guess that's assuming you've got money left over after reaching all those other goals. Let me put some hard numbers to this for us here at Trinity. According to the census data, the most recent census data, the median income here in Walla Walla is 42000 per person per year. That's the median. That means half the people in Walla Walla make more than that, half the people make less than that. And I don't know where you fall in that. I have no idea how much anybody makes in here, but uh, that's the median for our county. Okay? So if we take a tithe of that, the tithe, 10%, that's the biblical baseline of, of giving. If you were to tithe on that median income, give 10% of it away, that's $4,200, all right? Still with me? So earlier this morning, we filled out our orange cards. Thank you for that. Very helpful. And, uh, and for previous years of orange card data, we know that not everybody who comes to Trinity comes every single Sunday. You probably already knew that. 
we know that in the course of the average month, we have about 600 people who call Trinity home. 600 people who come in the course of the average month. They're not all here this morning. And uh, of those 600 people, some of them are kids, means they don't have an income, they don't have resources of their own. But about 350 of those people are adults. So 350 adults come to Trinity on a regular basis, okay? So when we talk about resources, we have 350 adults with some level of resources, resources they could use to give sacrificially. And just to complete the math for all of us, if we take that median income and we divide it by 350 people, then we're looking at a a total median income of almost $15 million for, for all of us. We're all millionaires. How about that? $15 million. Now, if all of us have that income and we all tithe, then our annual budget here at Trinity would be just under $1.5 million. Now, if you look at the back of your worship folder, you'll see that our annual budget is less than half of that. So why am I telling you this? I'm not telling you this because I want your money. God does not need your money. God wants your investment. He wants you and I to be invested in our relationships and in using our resources. He wants what happens in here to show up out there. And how we use our resources is probably the the clearest way to see what our priorities really are. But God's priority is radical, sacrificial generosity. We started our time this morning talking about freedom, a false sense of freedom that Las Vegas is offering us. But this book of Philemon, the personal journey of this slave Onesimus, shows us what real freedom can look like, freedom that can only come from having a relationship with Christ. Real freedom means we're free from fear, from pressure. It shows up in our relationships, and we're not a slave to status. We're free to treat people the way God treats people, with respect and dignity, with love, with grace, with humility. And real freedom means we're free from worry, worry about our resources. Real freedom means we know that everything we have belongs to God and can be used by him to invest in his priorities, radical, sacrificial generosity. Just imagine the scene, if you will. Imagine Onesimus carrying this letter. and He knocks on the door of Philemon's house. He's been changed. He's found freedom even though he's still a slave. Everything's changed for him. And he delivers this letter and everybody gathers around to read it, the whole church. And he gets to watch everything change for Philemon and for this church. He gets to see all these things start to show up in their relationships, in their resources. We get that same chance, the same chance to let what happens in here show up out there. Imagine all your relationships being reimagined, re-understood. What freedom there is in that. Imagine if the, the grip that you've got on your own resources is suddenly freed. You don't have to worry anymore. Well, let's commit to that. Let's make sure that what happens in here shows up out there. Let's pray. God, that is our desire. We want to be recognizing that everything we have belongs to you. We owe our whole lives to you and to your son Jesus, what he's done for us, Lord. Your grace and your goodness binds us uh, to you for all eternity. 
And more than just recognizing that what that looks like in our own life, we want it to show up in our relationships. We want it to show up in the way we use our resources. And I pray that you would guide us in that desire. Give us ways as individuals that we can see those things differently in our lives. We can see the resources the way you see them, that we can see our relationships the way you see them and begin to act on those things, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.